We come to our third Christmas reading for the evening, but before we do, Quentin Keller's parent needs to go to the narthex. Sounds like important business. Continuing with the story of the Magi. When they had gone on, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, seven days Three and a half hours from now, we'll know who was right, won't we? Will it be global economic meltdown? Will we finally get a chance to use all those cool supplies that we have been setting aside in our garage and in our backyard somewhere? Get a chance to spend all that cash that we pulled out over the last couple of weeks? Frankly, it's been a little tough for me to get too excited about the impact of Y2K upon us here. Let's see. Power outages... Uh, transportation difficulties, long lines, and limited phone access. This is Gig Harbor we're talking about. (laughs) We have that six times a year, and at least for three days at a time, right? So we're probably better prepared than most. But many have taken this very seriously, and we have tried to take it as seriously as we can. We have given attention to this issue. And it's a lot of speculation going on. What will the world look like in eight days? I don't know. But if you are as uncertain about it as I am, and in fact as everyone else is, then you are in the right place. There could be no better place to be on this last Christmas of this millennium. And I know the millennium doesn't start till next year, but tough. It makes more sense to call it millennium right here. Because we are here to celebrate the one who holds the future. We are here to celebrate the one who created the future. We are here to celebrate the one who is sitting in the future waiting for us to come to him. We have come together tonight to celebrate the birth of this all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, powerful God who chose to be born as a baby 2,000 years ago. That is why we are here tonight. No better preparation could you make for Y2K. We've been studying the book of Revelation for the last few months. The main theme of Revelation is end times, and so that makes a lot of sense. But this is Christmas Eve. Now, surely, Pastor Mark, you won't read a text out of Revelation for Christmas Eve, you might be saying. Well, Christmas is for surprises. And I have a text for you, a Christmas story. I would be surprised if you have ever heard on a Christmas Eve. Turn with me to our surprising Christmas story out of Revelation chapter 12, which you'll find in your bulletin. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. 
She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. And now, Lord God, speak to us from these stories, both familiar and new. May your word be real to our hearts. May your Christ be real to our hearts. For we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, was I right? How many of you have ever heard that story read on Christmas Eve? How many of you have ever heard that story preached? That's what I thought. Well, as unusual as it might seem to you, you are actually listening to the Apostle John's Christmas story. Now, when we read Christmas stories on Christmas Eve, ordinarily we turn to only two books, because that's where the Christmas story is, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew tells us about Joseph, tells us about the Magi, tells us about crummy old Herod. Luke gives us a woman's perspective, tells us about Mary and Elizabeth. He tells us about angels. He tells us about shepherds. But it's going to be one or the other. That's your choice if you want the Christmas story. And John, when he was writing his gospel, he just jumped right into the middle of it. He didn't have time for the Christmas story. But later on, John, when he was near his death, decided, hmm, I'm going to write another book. And this book was a book called the Revelation. It's the last book in our Bible. And it was a book about a remarkable vision that John had received when he was living in a cave on an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Most of the book has to do with the end times, with how God is going to wrap all of this up and bring it to completion. But right there, smack dab in the middle of that story of the end times, is this chapter, chapter 12, this remarkable story of the woman and the dragon. And whether you know it or not, when you read it, you are reading the Apostle John's version of the Christmas story. There's not a lot of ornaments that come out of that story that we'd like to see hanging from our Christmas trees, is there? Seven-headed, ten-horned dragon, that doesn't do too much for us. Sweeping the stars from the skies. Is this woman really Mary? Some think so. Others say that it was Israel, the nation from whom the, the, the Messiah was to be born. Surely the baby that is being born is Jesus, the one who will rule all of the nations. We have a dragon here who represents evil, who represents Satan, who is eagerly waiting for the birth of this baby. And you can almost see it in your mind's eye, laying, waiting for the birth of the child, snatching, ready to snatch it away during the, at the moment of birth, at this mother's weakest moment. This story is a picture of the great battle that is going on and has been going on since the beginning of time. The battle between good and evil. The battle between God and Satan or the devil. It is the battle for the soul of the world. Now when we think of the birth of Jesus, ordinarily we examine it through a microscope. See, we delight to look at a few things that we find warm and wonderful and precious to us. We are talking about a a young virgin who is surprised by an angel's announcement. Uh, A young man who is also surprised, maybe more surprised, and trying to do the most honorable thing he can imagine to do. 
we have this image of an inn that is full and a, a, a barn that is not. And so a, a manure-filled barn becomes a, an obstetrics ward. And we have the story of the shepherds ringing in our ears as the angels sing to us as well. And we have the wise men that are schlepping themselves across hundreds of miles of desert to come and pay homage to the newborn king. That is the image of Christmas that we look at under our microscope. These are the parts that we like. It is warm, it is beautiful, it is precious to us, even for the non-religious. The story is inspiring. This is the night when folks of all sorts of theological persuasions or no persuasions at all come to church. And by the way, we're delighted you're here. We really are. We're, we're glad you're here. Some churches, the pastor beats up on people when they show up at Christmas and Easter, and I've never quite understood how he thought that would help the church to grow at other times. We're delighted you're here for whatever reason. And we believe that sooner or later that the Spirit of God is going to grab hold of your heart and you're going to see what's going on. So we are glad that you're here. And that is the story that we have come to hear. For even those who have no interest in following the adult Jesus, they find... The story of the baby Jesus, kind of cute. Revelation 12 gives us a much broader view of the story of Christmas. You see, it turns the microscope around and now you're looking through the tiny end and you're seeing it exploding out before you. Revelation 12 tells us the story of the woman and the dragon. It lays the context for Christmas. It tells us the why. It tells us what was at stake. A great force of evil was at work in the world. Evil that encouraged human beings to hate one another, to steal from one another, to slay one another, to dominate one another. That was what was going on. This evil force, the Bible calls Satan. And something had to be done about it. God was not going to allow this evil to continue unopposed, unabated. And so the Lord God prepared a preposterous plan. He would come to earth as a baby. That's not what we have would have chosen to do but it was God's plan he would live as we were created to live he would love as we were created to love he would show us in that human expression of himself what we were supposed to be like in the first place before this evil got hold of us and then in a supreme act of love he would sacrifice his perfect life to save those who wanted saving that was the plan it has been the plan since the beginning of time but the curtain lifted and the lights came on to the stage on this plan two thousand years ago in a little town called Bethlehem Satan saw it coming and according to this story this text he wanted to destroy it even before it had a chance to work and so he lay in wait now frankly we don't understand all this about horns and crowns and sweeping a third of the stars from the sky with his tail but when you put a name on the dragon, a name like Herod, it makes more sense. Herod was the king. The wise men said that the new baby who would be born was also born to be king. And Herod would have none of it. And so he was poised, ready to destroy the one who would take his throne. And out of that horrible motivation, we have the tragic story of the slaughter of the innocents. The story of the woman and the dragon reminds us of the context of that first Christmas. The world was desperately broken. It was a world that was at war with itself. A world very much like our world today. But notice this. The story really doesn't begin at verse 1 of chapter 12. I want to take you back one verse and you have it in your, in your bulletin. Listen carefully. This is where I think that story begins. In verse 19 of chapter 11. Listen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened 
And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. In talking about this text tonight, which Stuart described as one of the most courageous things I've ever done, I was going to bring it into a modern light by referring to a, a contemporary movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then to my horror, I realized that Raiders of the Lost Ark came out 15 years ago and that I was dating myself. So I so hope some of you remember that movie. But in that movie, Indiana Jones, this great archaeologist, is searching for the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was covered with gold and it had angels on top. And in the Ark of the Covenant, this most precious of boxes, this treasure box, the people of Israel stored their reminiscences of God's delivery from, of them out of the, the bondage in the land of Egypt into the promised land. In it, for, for instance, was contained the tablets upon which was written the Ten Commandments. That was the Ark of the Covenant. And whatever the, wherever the Ark was, this was a holy place. Wherever they moved it, that was the place that God came and talked to Moses. Even when they were in the wilderness, they built a tent around it called the tabernacle. And that was where God and Moses would meet in near on the Ark of the Covenant. When they got to the promised land, they decided to build a house. The house was called the temple. Inside it was a room called the Holy of Holies. And there they placed the treasure box, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was so holy that only one person, once a year, could go inside. He went in on the Day of Atonement. It was the high priest. And in fact, they were so scared of doing this that they tied a chain to his foot. So that when he went in to the Holy of Holies, if he was struck down by God, at least they could drag his body out without having to go in and get him. The ark and the temple represent the dilemma that faced the people of God. That little box filled with all kinds of precious treasures represented the absolute holiness of God, the purity of God, His unapproachability. In the same way that fire burns us if we get too close, so too, coming close to the radiant presence of God Himself is to risk death. In a sense, the temple was a way of protecting the people of Israel from their own God who was too pure for them. But all along, God had a better idea. He said, I don't want it this way. I want to, I want to walk with my people. I want to touch my people. I want to hug them and love them and be with them. And in Revelation 11:9, we began to see that plan unfolding. Do you realize how remarkable these words are? Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Up until this point, the Ark, the temple, had been hidden and forbidden. Always God's treasure box was too holy to be touched, too holy to be seen but by all but a few. There was nothing that human beings could do about it. They were just not created to be in the presence of a holy God, not in their sinful state. And then God did a remarkable thing. He ripped the roof off of the temple. He pulled down the doors to that temple. And he opened up his treasure box and presented to the world the greatest gift that has ever been offered, his own son. We read this evening about the wise men who came offering gifts to lay at the foot of the King Jesus. And we carry on that tradition every time we offer gifts to each other. And there might be some of us when we take the time to think of it. Some of us who might even ask God, what gifts could we offer to you in gratitude for all that you have done for us? But the truth of it is, my friends, that the gift has already been given. It is God who opened his treasure box 
It is God who presented us His great gift, the gift of His own Son. A few weeks ago, I returned from Israel. While I was there, I bought the requisite gifts for the kids. Cooper, it will be four tomorrow. Rachel is seven. And I pulled out the stuffed camel and the olive wood toys and all of the things that I'd brought. And each time I did what is kind of our tradition, I'd say, I've got a surprise for you. And they said, what, Daddy? What, Daddy? And I'd show them the camel. I've got a surprise for you. What, Daddy? Show them this. And so when we were all done with our gift giving, my little three-year-old at the time, Cooper, said, Daddy, look it, I've got a surprise for you. And his hand was behind his back. I said, Cooper, what is your surprise? And with a flourish, he pulls out what he was hiding from behind his back. It was a dirty dish rag. <laughs> and with great joy in his eyes, he handed this gift of great value to his dad. There is a sense in which we, anything that we could possibly offer to God would be nothing more than a dirty dish rag. Compared to the gift that God has given to us in his son Jesus, what could we possibly give? On the other hand, I wonder if God isn't as delighted when we offer something of ourselves in the same way that I was delighted at Cooper's gift. I really don't have much use for a dirty dish rag, but I have a great deal of use for a little son who has watched his daddy give gifts and is trying to learn to give back to him. My friends, on this Christmas Eve, we remind ourselves that God tore open his great treasure box and offered the very best that he had to offer, his own son. He offered this gift to you and to me so that the evil that is at work in our world and sadly at work within our own hearts might not have the final word. The greatest Christmas gift that you could offer in return would be to say, Lord, thank you for loving me this much. And I offer you my life as dirty as it might be Please make it clean. Let us pray. This is our prayer, O oh God, that we would offer ourselves to you, and having received our meager gifts, you would delight in making them clean and perfect and suited for your purpose. For we ask these things in the name of the precious gift, Jesus, your Son. Amen.